Hey guys, it's Jamie Scrimger here, second wife, stepmom of three, and mom of one. And you're listening to my podcast, where we talk about all things motherhood, stepmotherhood, and living a kick-ass life. If you're ready for raw and real conversations and are striving to live your very best life, then you are in the right place. Every week, I'll provide you with tips and strategies and mindset shifts to inspire you to live your own version of a kick-ass life. We'll bring you along as I create my own. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. So guys, this episode is going to feel like a cross between sitting down and having a conversation with Brene Brown and Oprah. And I'm not exaggerating here either. This week, my guest is Lise Wilcox. Lise is, honestly, she's probably one of the most beautiful humans I've ever connected with. She is a writer, she is a speaker, she is a life coach, and she basically is all about helping women find clarity in what they want, confidence in who they are, and the courage to stay true to both. So through lots of life lessons and some life-altering challenges like divorce, single parenting, tackling aggressive breast cancer, Lise has taught herself to turn the difficult and ugly in life into something purposeful and beautiful. This episode will leave you feeling calm, inspired, with an urge to start to ask yourself some very important questions that may just change the game for you. I seriously cannot wait for you to hear all that Lise has to say. But before we get into the episode, I do want to take a quick second and I just want to thank you. Guys, when you screenshot these episodes and share them out on social media, it truly does mean the world to me. Not only do I love to know who's listening, but I love to see what you're doing when you're listening. So whether you're listening to this episode while you're doing the dishes, driving, on a walk, folding laundry, doing a workout, I am just so grateful that you choose to tune in because I love bringing these game-changing conversations to you. So I just want to say thank you for the online love and thank you for helping me spread the word. So without further ado... Let's dive in and hear what Lise has to say. Lise, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so, I woke up today so giddy excited because (laughs) you just have this contagious personality and you you. are seriously just a joy. Even just watching your Instagram stories, there's something about you that just yeah, it just makes people feel good. So I'm so yeah. excited to share that with my people. Amazing. So for those who aren't familiar, give us your elevator pitch. Like, who are you? What do you do? What are you all about? I'm a professional human. <laughs> Usually the pitch ends there. <laughs> As we talk, we get like very real into whatever is on that person's mind. Um, my mission, my purpose in life is to help women find clarity in who they are or in what they want, the confidence in who they are and the courage to stay true to both. And you know, that's a very human experience and it's one that most of us struggle with our whole lives. Like that is the game of our lives, right? Figuring all that stuff out. So I uh, purposefully write, speak and coach on exactly that process. And do you think that most people are living purposefully? I don't. And I don't intend for that to be a negative thing. I think most people I think life is really overwhelming for like to the best of us, the most self-aware of us. Like we still have challenges with figuring out life and, you know, 
Some of that is just the human experience. Some of that is that we've become so disconnected from the support networks we're supposed to have in place. And we're trying to do this all by ourselves. And it like, we're not designed to do it like that. I think a lot of people are just doing the best that they can. They are following the models that they have, even if they're unhealthy models to follow. And uh, I think most people are just trying to get by. I think that it's a I think it's a growing number who is living with purpose and living intentionally, but I do still think it's in the minority. Yeah. And I feel like people look at things like personal development and, Mm -hmm. you know, growing as a person, just, you know, reading the books or doing the work as just being an extra thing that they don't have time for. Yeah. But when you actually do the work and that's where I really, the message that I really try to spread for people is it opens up so more, much more space. It exactly. makes everything so much easier when you take that step. I have this, I've been starting to ask myself every morning, mm-hmm. how would my best self show up today? Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if I were at my best, how would I do today? Mm-hmm. And I've told a couple girlfriends about that and I can just see their eyes looking at me like really dreamy. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, really? Yes. Yes. And it's, it's very easy to lose that message, right? Because the inclination for a lot of us who are like cloaked in the safety blanket of cynicism is like, "Uh uh-huh. How would your best self show up today, Jamie? When actually it's like, do you want to have an awesome life or not? Because you're allowed to have an awesome life. And having an awesome life doesn't mean that you need to pack everything up and move to Bali. That might be what your best life looks like. But, you know, for a lot of us, our best life really is just having a really wonderful, quiet, family life. You're allowed to do what feels good to you. And if you wake up every day the opposite and you're like, again, kind of buried in all the things that are going wrong and the ways, the ways that you've been wronged and the things that haven't worked out, it's very easy to sleepwalk through your life. When you have that kind of courage on the other side to wake up and be like, you know what? You get one life. It isn't very long. How do I maximize it? Like, how do I make it my own? And how do I add more joy and pleasure to my life? The game changes. And it's that becomes like the bell you can't unring. But you said it. Sometimes you need to know that first before you really know it. And that's where I think people get really stuck is in that fear. Yeah. And, you know, I think back to when I first started following you, you talked a lot about self-love and finding Mm -hmm. love after divorce. What inspired you to start sharing that journey with the internet? That's a really good question. Um, so I, part of my own narrative and I, I think I got to work on this myself, but part of my own narrative has been like, I can handle anything because I can, I can make sense of it. I'm strong enough to make sense of it and share that very human experience with the world around me. Um, that's a part of it. I used to be a Montessori teacher, like in my very early twenties, that's what my first career was. And when I transitioned from being a Montessori teacher to being a stay at home mom, when I had like three kids in two years, um, I needed to do something with the information in my head. And I started writing a parenting column in our local newspaper. And the parenting column is what actually sparked this sharing process because I had so much information about kids and and families and child development that I was writing about it. But as my own life started to shift direction, I didn't want to write about parenting anymore. Like the the more I knew about parenting, the less I wanted to write about it. And so I started writing more things about relationships and about the relationship we have with ourselves. And it, it really naturally transitioned to being 
a blog and because the way we consume content has changed so radically in the last 10 years, I still write a blog, but I also, you know, have a mini blog every day, basically on Instagram. And I think that that is, I don't know that I even necessarily chose it. I think it just kind of happened. Yeah. And I can, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It just kind of happened over here too. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, you know, posts got a little more raw and a little more yeah. real and yeah. then a community starts to develop yeah. and you start to see how many people are craving these real conversations. And even if you want to stop, there are days where I am like, I don't even know if I want to share this anymore, but mm-hmm. you can't because there's so mm-hmm. many people who are, you, it's just this amazing community, right? Well, and it becomes so interesting because I mean, I'm sure you know, know this from your own life too. These are the conversations we are having with the people in our, you know, intimate circles, right? And they're conversations that leave you, like when you leave your friends after a conversation, you feel so good and so seen and appreciated and connected, like somebody else is witnessing your experience with you. And um, there are so many people who don't have that yet. They don't have that level of vulnerability, even in their own personal relationships yet. And so it like, it's so satisfying to be able to be this thought starter, um, and plant those little seeds of the conversations that I know have shaped my own life and my own purpose and share those with other people to really get the ball rolling, uh, for them in their own process. Yeah, that is so true. Now you talk about divorce in your content. How do you think that your divorce changed you as a person? Divorce was a wake up call for me. You know, I had like a really beautiful life and it looked so perfect from the outside and it even kind of felt so perfect from the outside. Um, but at the core of it, I had this really terrifying moment where I like looked around my honest to God, seven bedroom house with this brand new kitchen and my really good looking husband and beautiful children, like, you know, just this lovely little life. And I had this terrifying realization. I was like, how is this not enough for me? And, um, that moment really triggered an internal answer, like an intuitive answer that was like, Oh, Lise, nothing will be enough for you until you are enough for you. So that kickstarted the process for me of really, really clearing up some very old icky stuff from my own past. And that process really then started to kickstart a divorce and the divorce and the devastating loss that divorce is and the ripple effect it had on my own life. It like blew everything up that I knew to be true. And then I just started picking up the pieces and some of the stuff belonged and some of it didn't belong. And so I had to like rebuild my life. And I often refer to that as life 2.0. It was divorce. That was a springboard for letting me know that this was my moment. Like this was my moment to decide who was I going to be and how am I going to show up and what do I actually want? Those were some big, scary questions. And it took a while to figure out, um, that it really was the process of divorce and that like, this feeling of an emotional bomb going off that really caused me to, uh, to start over. Yeah. And you know, often it is when you have that very life changing moment mm-hmm. where you have yeah. to stop and reevaluate what it mm-hmm. is that actually matters. And it's actually so crazy. Our, our past, you talk about having mm-hmm. to work through your past and some past issues. It is just so insane on how much our past (laughs) affects our present, but how much people ignore that fact. Mm -hmm. 
It's wild. I have um, neuro-linguistic programming training that we just shortened down to NLP. And that is basically understanding how the mind works in a fundamental way. And, you know, you acquire so many of your beliefs without even knowing it in early childhood. And I always use this example that when we're zero to six, it's like our brain is this fresh sheet of fallen snow and we're just running around making paths. Like it's effortless. We just, we just go and make whatever path we want. And then around age, you know, six, seven, eight, there's this flash freeze and all of those patterns are just frozen in space. You know, you live in Stratford, you know, as well as I do that it is, they're frozen there. It's still possible to make new pathways, but it just takes a lot more effort. So if you don't want to exert the effort, which your brain never does, your brain always wants to take the path of least resistance. You keep following those same footsteps. You keep following those same patterns until you consciously decide to change them. So throughout the course of your life, you're on autopilot. You're just doing what you have already learned to be true subconsciously. And even if you don't like where it's leading you and you don't like the result, you absolutely will keep repeating it until you consciously decide to create a new pathway. And that that is the work, is learning how to get up there, deprogram what you knew to be true and reprogram what you want to be true. Yeah. And, you know, we continue to find yourself or you will continue to find yourself in the same situations, in the same challenges, yeah. in the same emotions over and over again until yeah. you deal with your shit. Mm-hmm. You uh, know? It's an absolute truth. Yeah. So. Yeah. My mom used to say to me, I used to think my mom, my mom actually laughs because she's, she was pretty into personal development and stuff growing mm-hmm. up. And I always thought she was so weird. <laughs> you know, some of the things that would come out of her mouth, I'm like, lady, you're so messed. Like even as a teenager, I would look at her and be like, I don't know what happened to you. But then, you know, I became a mom and an adult (laughs) and I find myself with the same rituals as she does and and saying the same things as she did. And she used to say, you know, we're all, and I don't know what I believe in and all of that. And it's a whole different Mm -hmm. conversation, but basically, you know, we're all here to learn. Yeah. Uh, one lesson and it's the big lesson of each mm-hmm. of our lives. And mine was always that I couldn't control everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, I became a stepmom and mm-hmm. you cannot control everything as a stepmom. Most of nope. your life is outside <laughs> of your control. So yeah. that was something that I had to go back and realize how much of my childhood and some of the trauma that I had been through mm-hmm. led me to being that person. So I always encourage people to go back, you know, if they're feeling off in life, mm-hmm go back to the beginning because that's where it all began. Absolutely. And that's, that's the bulk of my coaching practice for sure. The bulk of my writing that it's like when you have a thought or when you have a feeling or emotion, it has roots. And if you continuously, like there's this real push to just think positively, uh, uh-uh, it doesn't work. That is not enough. You really need to take each and every one of those like emotional tendrils and trace it back to the very root where it began so that you can kill it at the root and you can actually make the changes in your life. Just thinking differently doesn't work. You have to go way deep down and change the belief. And that, depending on who you are, but in my experience for most people, um, 
that can be scary work at first because it disrupts all of your safety systems. Um, and it's like when you have somebody guiding you through the process, then it's completely possible and really pleasurable at the end of it because that's when you start to see the right people show up in your life and the, the really fulfilling opportunities show up in your life. And suddenly you're like having one of those moments thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm really happy. Amongst the crap, amongst yeah, all yeah. of the stressors, you can still yeah. be happy. And that's something that I really, I really try to push. Now you have, there was, I think this was off your website mm -hmm. and you talked about why I stopped trying to make other people happy. And mm -hmm. here's something that you said, you said for 30 years, I all but tried to make myself invisible, wanting to keep everyone happy and not upset anyone. I minimized my needs, downplayed my feelings, lied about what I wanted or changed it to align with what people wanted around and from me, smiling on the outside the whole time, but feeling like I was slowly dying a little on the inside and reeling with the shame caused by that dissonance. Can you unpack that for me? That's a really intense passage, isn't it? It was. I, it hit me hard. <laughs> Whew, that hit me hard. And I like, I experienced it. Uh, I wrote that for my friend, Caleb Campbell, who lives in the U.S. And um, his whole blog is centered on why I stopped. He's an amazing guy to check out. He's an ex-NFL player and uh, writes about shame a lot. But anyway, yeah, for me, it was a safety. It was a defense mechanism that I developed very, very early on that I learned when I asked for what I wanted or when I tried to get my own needs met, I was basically punished in an emotional way. I was punished emotionally. Uh, and I am very highly sensitive personality. Uh, and I don't like feeling like that because it feels like you are actually dying. So to minimize that experience for myself, I learned, cool, I will suppress what I want because that's too painful to be rejected when I, when I ask for it. And I will just start doing what I think everybody else expects of me. And you can see already when you spell it out <laughs> simply like this is flawed. This is problematic from the very beginning, because if you always ignore what you want and just do what everybody else wants, you are perpetually unhappy. And the moment that you decide to change that, you've now changed the game and you've changed the rules. So now you disappoint people on the other side when you decide to set those boundaries and you stop trying to make other people happy. But for me, yes. And it was a, it was a long time coming that I just ignored who I was. I ignored what I was good at. I was taught that everything I was naturally good at was not valuable and not worthy. Therefore, I should change it and start being good at the stuff that was valuable and that was worthy. I just happened to not be good at it. So then I struggled like all the time and I just couldn't ever find my place. So yes, it was post-divorce when I had that like on the floor moment of like, what the hell, how am I going to do this? And that's the moment I was like, no, the only way out is to really start being who I authentically am. And it's like the most... It's like the simplest and the most complicated, you know, revolutionary act I think you can, you can do in this life. And did you find shifts in your relationships when you had, you all of a sudden had that mentality? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, because you learn to set healthy, loving boundaries that respect who you are and what you need. And when you do that, a couple of things happen. One, you, in my experience, you lose a lot of people from your previous life because, and, and I have so much compassion for that because all of a sudden from their perspective, 
this person they've known for so long has radically changed and is dramatically different and they don't know what to do with that. And they might not even like them anymore. Right. Like I understand that. Um, but the, you, so I found that your circle gets smaller, but much richer. It's now filled with people, even if there are far fewer of them, it's filled with people who really like and love you for who you are. It is actually not conditional upon anything else, anything that you're going to do for them, anything you're going to say to them in any way that you make them feel. They just really appreciate you for who you are. So yes, please. I will happily have three people in my life with whom I have that kind of relationship. Instead of 55 people, I feel like I'm trying to please all the time and never really delivering because it's never really me acting from that space. And never really feeling like you belong. Oh, uh, absolutely. That's a huge part of it is that then you live, that's where imposter syndrome comes from, right? You just live with this fear of like, oh my God, one day somebody is going to pull back the curtain and have a peek and they're going to reject me all over again. It is like the worst feeling. And I think, oh God, I bet just 75% of people live their lives like that. But then when you're starting new relationships and you have that commitment to just simply be who you are, you have that commitment to draw those healthy, loving boundaries. You set up this really natural filter for anybody new coming into your life because suddenly if they don't align with what your values are, it, there's no hard feelings. It's just like, oh, cool. We're not really meant to be in this relationship together. And it becomes so much easier and so much less disappointing with so much less rejection simply by being yourself. Oh my gosh. I love that <laughs> so, so much. And it's so true, right? And, and a message that I think so many people just need to hear. It's just, it's, it's tough. It's tough to hear for a lot of people, I think. And, and the irony is that that is ultimately the message that we want to parent our kids with, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I love you deeply for who you are. All you have to do is, you know, go to school, go to soccer, go to ballet and just be yourself. And for, for us as adults, it's like, yeah, baby, you be yourself, but uh, I'm not going to be myself. I'm just going to keep on as many masks as possible to meet as many other people's needs as possible at the expense of meeting my own. Yeah. And I wonder when that happens, you know, at the very mm-hmm. beginning, you know, in childhood, I even look at kids and I look at my stepchildren and mm-hmm. I remember, I just remember seeing that shift in personality mm-hmm. where it was not just being your carefree self and, you know, the fun loving mm-hmm. kid who could just bust out and dance or whatever. Yeah. And all of a sudden having those social nerves or feeling like maybe their personality has being dulled down a bit mm-hmm. so that they don't shine too much. And I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. Cause I know we've mm-hmm. all done that. We've all mm-hmm. done that in our lives. But when, when do you think that shifts? A lot of that is developmental because uh, like, so it's not, I want to be really careful how I say this. It's not necessarily wrong to do that because some of that follows the natural course of our own developmental evolution. When we start to become, you know, eight, nine, 10 preteen teens, we become so much more aware that the world exists outside our family. And so, you know, we've already established the relationship we have with our family and we start to look beyond that unit for more social acceptance slash the fear of social rejection, because we are, we are still pack animals. Like this takes it way back. We are still social creatures. We are still social animals and we still at a genetic level are, we are so aware that we require the approval of the group for our own safety and security that is embedded into the very fiber of our being. So that 
also plays a role in subconsciously guiding us. The nuance comes in when we feel like that natural pull to start testing rules and testing boundaries to see, you know, if we act in this way, will our family still love us? Will our friends still approve of us? You know, um, blended with a, a sense of ability to be ourselves or have we been shamed for being ourselves? You know, when we bring it back to a parenting perspective, when little ones get hurt and we're like, no, 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 you're fine. We do it from a, such a genuine place, right? Of like, okay, it's a scrape knee, like it's going to heal. I can already fast forward as the adult. I know you're going to be okay. But for the kid, it's like, I feel sad. I feel hurt. I feel scared. Oh, but mommy says I'm fine. So I guess I'm fine. You know, like we learn so early on not to acknowledge our own feelings and to suppress them and to change them to make somebody else happy that like long story short, we are battling a lot of messaging from a very, very early age. Yeah, no, that's so true. So what should we say instead of fine? I know this is off script, but instead of saying fine, what do you recommend saying? Oh, I mean, I'm, I, I do. I have three kids, so I know that there is an ideal language that we use. And I also understand there's a heat of the moment where we are still human and we make mistakes, right? So I got to underline that. But um, with my own kids, and certainly when I was in the classroom, for me, it's always a cuddle. And it's like, okay, so take a nice deep breath. Sometimes my kids like that. Sometimes they hate it. <laughs> but I will then start to say, like, are you scared or are you hurt? Because that you know, as their caregiver tells me which direction this is going to go. Cause sometimes they're just mad, you know, they're not even hurt. They're just really mad that they fell or they're really mad that somebody pushed them. So when I actually, you know, very simply ask them how they're feeling, then I have a better sense of like, okay, if you're scared, I can tell you, you know, you're here in my arms, take a nice deep breath with me. You were completely safe. I'm going to hold you till you feel better. That kind of thing. If you're hurt, it's like, okay, show me where you're hurting. Oh yeah. Those scraped knees. Oh man. They're just, oh, just such a part of being a kid in the summer. Like it just starts to change the conversation, but at the very core, it acknowledges how that little person is feeling. And that is the fundamental thing. I think Jamie is that so many of us live our lives without ever truly feeling like we are seen or like we are heard. And again, that like really basic level of asking our kids, like, are you scared? Are you hurt? And here's how I'm going to attend to one or both of those needs really starts to give them that subconscious safety that they are allowed to feel the way they feel. And that that is okay, how they're feeling and that somebody is going to be there to support them while they're feeling it. Wow. You're giving me chills, right? Now. <laughs> that is so helpful. It makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, it totally does. Now I know it's about to, this conversation's already blowing my mind, but I know it's about <laughs> to get even deeper. So another Instagram post that you you talked about, and I thought it was the best one to really, to really sum up everything that's been going on in your life. You posted, here's what you said. So this will kind of give everyone the lowdown. One year ago, I had returned home from the driving the California coast all the way from LA to Seattle in a brand new Mustang convertible. I've been told after finding a lump in my left breast that it was all good and that I could rest easy. I had no idea at the time what lay ahead in terms of proper diagnosis of treatment of facing the dreads of very old and very toxic and uncomfortable stories I've been telling myself for far too long or of the wild sense of freedom, inner peace and love that conquering these fears would lead me to. 
One year later, I've returned home from Austin, built an active coaching and speaking practice, experienced safe passage through aggressive breast cancer, eight rounds of equally aggressive chemo, shaved my head and loved it, been featured and I'm not going to go in through all these features, but you have basically <laughs> featured everywhere, built this crazy, you know, coaching business, you know, chosen sobriety, removed your breast, healed your body and your relationships. Like your life is thriving right now. Mm-hmm. And you did that amongst everyone's worst case scenario, like mm-hmm. having cancer and going through chemo. You you had all the right to be like, you know, I'm going to take this year and I'm just going to kind of be pissed off and kind of deal with the things that I need to deal with. You had every right to press pause, Mm -hmm. but you didn't. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about that diagnosis? Like, let's start at the beginning. Cause I was in, I was in Mm -hmm. California with you and I remember Mm -hmm. we went to dinner and you know, you were going on this amazing road trip. Oh yeah. After I see your Instagram post, I'm like, what the hell? Another very intense post by by Lise Wilcox. Let's be serious. You are the queen of intense posts for sure. (laughs) I have kind of an intense personality, but I'm, you know, I don't know. It's very real. And I also have a very lighthearted personality. It's a, it's a blend, a unique blend. So I had a very intense year. There was a, there was a misdiagnosis. So when I, I found a lump just before I went to LA and I went to my doctor right away and had a mammogram and an ultrasound right away. And honestly, it was like, they're like, you're so young. I would think I was 36. Um, they're like, you're so young. You have two lumps there. So that really doesn't present as cancer. Like just go to California and have fun. And so I did. And I went on this epic road trip and that was amazing because that was the kind of, you know, this is all going to come down to purposeful living just as a spoiler alert. Um, that is a road trip I have always dreamed of doing. And I knew it was becoming one of the things I would, that would remain a dream unless I actually did it. And so I did it and it was fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I got back and long story short, a couple months later after some follow-up work and some, another mammogram and then uh, a biopsy, um, they found three tumors and it was highly aggressive breast cancer. And it was like, what? I just remember sitting there being like, what are you talking about? They had totally misread the the pathology report. They had totally misread the exam. So all of a sudden, I think it was August 27th, uh, 2018, I found out that I had really aggressive breast cancer that unequivocally would require chemo, likely radiation or a double mastectomy. And I was like, just sitting there in in a complete puddle of like emotions being like, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know how to overcome this. And, um, that's the defining moment is that, I mean, blissfully for me, and like, this was truly a moment of deep gratitude and having been deeply, deeply blessed, nothing had spread. So although the cancer was super aggressive, it didn't go into my lymph nodes. It stayed very contained. So when we removed, uh, the tumors via a lumpectomy, cancer was gone. Uh, but cancer is really sneaky and, uh, tends to like put out all these little sleeper cells throughout your body. And so chemo was recommended, like not suggested, but highly recommended, uh, to do as a course of action to eradicate any little sleeper cells that might present as cancer later on. So we did 
aggressive chemo because I am young. I am healthy. I am very strong. They hit me with like intensive chemo for four months. And then the conversation. So now I've like lost my hair. I'm rocking the bald thing. And, um, I was already missing like half a breast because of the lumpectomy. Um, and the conversation became, well, you can do radiation or you can opt to have a double mastectomy. And we had already found some other weird unknown thing in my other breast. And they were like, it's probably nothing. We can watch it for six months. And I was like, oh, hell no. We have had that conversation before. Let's just do this. And um, that's how the double mastectomy came to be, that it was like, this is curative for me. I'm going to do chemo. I'm going to do the surgery. And then I'm going to just like see a never cancer in my rear view mirror. So to answer your question, like, why didn't I just stay in bed and get angry about it? Because I do choose to live my life with purpose and intention. And for me, sitting in bed and feeling sorry for myself, basically, for lack of a better uh, phrase, wouldn't be purposeful for me. It would do nothing to move me forward. It would not help me. It would certainly not help my family. It would not make me feel good. And I wanted to do the opposite of all those things. I wanted to be able to move my life in a really forward direction. I wanted to be very present for my family and for myself and for my business and all that good stuff. Um, and the, the silver lining, I guess you could call it, uh, during chemo, and let's call it divorce as well, every time I had a treatment, my kids were scheduled to go to their dad's house for the weekend. And so I went as one or two or both of my aunts would come and stay with me. I'd have treatment. The girlies would be here on that Thursday evening. We would have what we called a fake Friday and we'd like order pizza and watch a movie because I could handle that just like laying very low. And, um, and the next day they'd go to school, they'd go with their dad for the weekend and my aunt would just be here taking care of me. So I sat on the couch I would write, I wrote a book proposal while I was in chemo. I would write, I would do guest podcasts. I would like work on my website. I would work on my own strategy and vision of what I wanted to my, wanted for my life. I pitched a whole bunch of brands to work with because I often refer to this process of um, emotional alchemy that in my life, the guiding principle has been to take something really dark and terrible and transform it into something really beautiful and, and really make it my own. And so for me, that was the guiding light that it was like, how do I make this experience beautiful? How do I make it purposeful? How do I celebrate it to be, you know, not a, a victimized part of my story, but how do I, how do I use it to my advantage? Um, and it worked. And, you know, some of that was mindset. I think a lot of it was mindset. I think some of it was like, pure luck. I know that not everybody has the same kind of diagnosis that I had. And for me, I was just able to really, really and truly make every single thing that happened purposeful and really beautiful and a, um, a forward moving part of my own experience. And I bet that having that mindset and that attitude and, and doing those different tasks when you were going through the treatment really had an impact on how your body responded to. I do feel like so you're, you're, you're thinking about the future. You are, yeah. this is not getting you down. You are, you're not thinking worst case scenario. Yeah. You're thinking what's next. Yeah. And I also, you know, there are a number of factors here and I am a mindset coach. So I also, I want to get really on board with like, Oh, it's totally my mindset. It was, it was much bigger than that as well, because to me, it was a foregone conclusion that I was healthy and that I was getting through this. Like I literally, 
wrote out a checklist of everything I had to do to get through cancer. And every time something happened, I checked one more thing off. It was like, oh, perfect. We're like right on schedule, just moving right along. I also had unbelievable support. You know, being self-employed with a cancer diagnosis is a little scary, but it actually worked to my advantage because I didn't have to not go into work. Like I already work from home. So that was very forgiving. And that was very accommodating. I have an amazing family and I I haven't asked them this. I should, I don't know if they believed me or if they like believed in my vision the same way that I did, but even if they didn't, they fully supported it. And when I needed to have some really intense conversations with my, one of my uncles is a physician when I needed to ask him straight up if I should do chemo or not. He gave me the real, real on it. When I went back to him and I was like, Oh my God, I'm thinking about removing my breasts. I'm thinking about going flat because to me, reconstruction is way too dangerous. And I can't believe I'm saying this out loud to you, uncle Carl, but I am also terrified that being flat will ever prevent me from finding a husband. Like I had like some dark conversations with people in my family. My aunts showed up without hesitation. They just booked off whatever they needed to book off and they just showed up. They cleaned my house, they cooked, they sat with me, they watched Bradley Cooper movies with me or they said nothing because they knew I just needed to, to sit. But they supported me in doing whatever I needed moment by moment. And that, like, that was a gift because I just had nothing but support to handle it the way I personally needed to handle it. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's a huge aspect of it. Now, what would you say though, to people who are saying, okay, that's so great. You know, you went through hell and you know, you had this mindset, you had this support, I don't have that support. If people are craving community and want to live purposefully, but they feel like they have no one. How do you create it then? You know, I learned how, how to ask for help during this process for sure. Cause sometimes we want help. We don't know how to ask for it or even deeper. We ask for it, but we don't know how to receive it because through a number of circumstances in our lives, we've learned that when people help us, it's actually an intrusion or we get rejected or if they help us, we're going to owe them. So sometimes there's a subconscious block there. And I learned to reach out to friends of mine who are already close and who have just become even closer because everybody wants to offer you help. Everybody wants to say like, Oh, just let me know how I can help. And they don't really know what to do. So to some of my friends, I was like, can you just drive me to this appointment? Cause that would be a lot easier. And they were like, yep, no questions. Right before surgery, a friend of mine was like, what can I do? And I was like, Oh my God, can I please borrow like a zip front hoodie? And she's like, absolutely. No problem. She went to the store and bought me a zip front hoodie and a bag of chuckle covered pretzels. I was like, no, this is friendship. You know, I asked my friends if they would, um, bring food or there was a, a group of parents at our school who asked what they could do to support me and to support my family. Um, and at first I was like, Oh man, if you guys could like prepare a whole bunch of food, that would be awesome. I'll just keep it in the freezer. And then I hung up the phone and I was like, Oh my God, what have I done? I do not want a whole bunch of strangers making food for us. And then me having to deal with it and like possibly people stopping by when I don't want them to stop by. So I phoned back and I was like, I made a mistake. That kind of help will not actually be helpful to me. Is there any way you guys can organize a snow shoveling service? And that was really vulnerable for me because 
again, from this conversation, you know, I had a really hard time asking for help and asking for my own needs to be met. But having gone through this process of learning how to get that done, I was able to say to them, like, this would be the most helpful thing to me. So again, long story short, even if you feel like you don't have anybody in your life or you don't have that community, you do have the option to start creating it. And it starts by being the one who has enough courage to ask for help. And in that way, or if somebody is being not supportive, you know, sometimes the, we don't feel like we have a strong connection to our community, even though we're surrounded by people because we have parents or friends or family members who are like, what are you going to do? What's your business going to do? What are your kids going to do? This is a terrible thing. What are you going to do about life insurance? You and you alone have to be the person who looks at them tenderly and lovingly, but very, very firmly and says, this is not the support I need from you. Like what you are saying does not help me. It is hurting me. If we want to continue this conversation, we got to change the conversation. That's a bold and courageous thing to do. And it's your decision if you do it or not. Yeah. And that is so true. And you know what? That's, that's not even just if you're dealing with cancer, that's not just, mm-hmm. that's life. That yeah. is parenting, that's step parenting, mm-hmm. that's your marriage, any other struggles, financial issues. Like yeah. we do, I think we do feel like when we ask for help or when people reach out and said, Hey, let me know if you need anything. Mm-hmm. It's more of uh, something that people just say yeah. as opposed to something that we actually do. And yeah. that's where the shift needs to be. We, we are a community. We are here to help each other. So, you know, just do it. Say what mm-hmm. you need. Ask people mm-hmm. what you need because you can only do so much. Yeah. And when you, and and that's the thing is that often we feel when we say things like, oh, let me know what I can do to help. Psychologically, you've done your part. You've offered help, right? So you don't feel compelled to like help that person anymore until they ask for it because you've told them to ask for it. So you have to be the person who is willing to be vulnerable and strong enough to be like, oh my God, you know what I really need? I really need like gift cards to swish all it, whatever, whatever it is for you, that's going to make your life easier and better. I really need you to take my kids to school, or I need you to drive while I am in the car with you to take my kids to school. Cause I can't drive, but it's really important to me to keep their routine a hundred percent the same, like as, as similar as we can. So you just have to ask for what you need and for what you want. And that, that comes back to the boundaries thing. You have to just be really comfortable in, in setting and living those boundaries. Yeah. Okay, last question. What do you think is holding most people back from living the type of life that they want to live? Fear for the win. Or the lose. (laughs) Or the lose, yeah. Not for the loser, but fear, fear, fear. Our brain cannot tell the difference between the kind of fear we get when a bear is chasing us and we are like running through the woods fearing for our lives or having a really difficult conversation with somebody in which we might be rejected or, you know, put down. It's the same fear. It triggers the same chemical response and the same physiological response. So think about how powerful that is. All of these emotional and usually irrational fears that we have are preventing us from doing those big things that create lasting change in our life because it feels too scary. So the, the antidote to that is once again, I'm like beating a dead horse here. Sorry. It's like this. You can tell this really is my life's work, right? You have to get very clear 
on what that fear is and have the courage to face it and move through it so that you can move on from it. And it it is that simple is that you have to be self-aware enough to know what is scaring you, maybe figure out where it's coming from to identify like the, the trigger pattern that's happening and then take the steps to move through it so that you can safely distance yourself from it. It's like the only way out is through. Yeah. And I always like to ask myself, what is the worst case scenario? If I try something new or I'm going into a situation or whatever it is that's happening, like even, you know, for us, if we're dealing with co-parenting issues or any of that kind of stuff, before I go in, I'm like, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? Okay. Process that. How would you deal? And then move forward because the chances are it's not going to be the worst case scenario. Exactly. Actually going to be the best thing that you've ever done. Yeah. And, and I had this really empowering realization very recently that some of the hardest things I have ever done in my life are having those difficult conversations. And you're like, oh, conversation, that's a pretty charmed life you've led because that's like not a big deal. Those conversations, again, when we bring it back to DNA, we are social creatures. So the fear of being rejected hits us at like an ancestral level that if we are rejected, we no longer belong here. So yeah, suddenly that difficult conversation you have to have with somebody in your life about getting your needs met or not, it's really scary. When you start to say it out loud, like that's a really smart strategy that you use. What is the actual worst case scenario? Like what is actually happening? You start to become very clear and very aware that like, oh, this, (laughs) when you say it out loud, it doesn't actually sound as bad as it feels in my head. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You know what? I could talk to you forever. We're going to have to do this again sometime because you are so full of wisdom <laughs> speaking to you. I just feel so calm, so motivated girl. You are definitely, you are something special. That is thank for you. sure. And I thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I know, I know, you know, there's so much of what you said that I know there's a lot of people in my community. They just, they need to hear. Uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to connect with them. I really, really appreciate it. Perfect. And I will link all things to your website and your Instagram and all of that below for everyone to check out. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay, guys, if you like this podcast, please do me a little favor. Take a second and subscribe on iTunes and then screenshot this podcast. Give it a share in social media and tell your friends what you think. And hey, don't forget to tag me so that I can thank you for helping me spread the word. Thanks so much. And I will talk to you next week. Thank you.